Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you here this morning. If you haven't yet, I would invite you to turn in your a copy of the scriptures to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you're visiting with us today or using a, a Bible in uh, the seat back in front of you, uh, you can find our text this morning on page 1038. And while you're turning there, I want to uh, invite you to remember where we've been. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you're joining us online, or if you've been in and out over the last few weeks uh, with sickness or work, uh, I want to make sure we are all on the same page as we come to the text this morning. We've been working through a study in the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, and over the last six weeks, we've had six messages helping us begin to unfold this beautiful letter um, that the Apostle Paul wrote for us. The first two weeks, we spent time overviewing from a high-level perspective, kind of the, the general themes and the direction of the book. And then the last four weeks, we've slowly worked through chapter one. And uh, as we enter into chapter two this morning, what I want to draw your attention to and connect the dots for you is how chapter 2 connects with what we've been reading in chapter 1. If you're like myself in our uh, modern Bibles, uh, we find breakdowns of chapters and verses, and those are incredibly helpful. Uh, but the temptation can be, when we read them, to, to disconnect thoughts based off of chapters or verses or, or paragraph breaks that uh, were put in there. And those are not inspired or original. And as helpful as they are, they can sometimes break up thoughts for us and we end up missing major points and themes in the scripture if we simply just read chapter by chapter without seeing how they connect. And so this morning, as uh, as we begin, what I want to do is reread for you some of the verses that we've studied so far, that we've unpacked, and then I want to summarize them and show you how they connect to today's passage. So if you would, look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 15. The scripture says this, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When we come to this text, and even after sitting through two weeks of uh, careful unpacking of the text and breaking it down, giving light and understanding to it, we still read through it and can find ourselves, if you're like me, blown away and having trouble comprehending the glory that is unfolded for us. And so this week I worked on summarizing that in a helpful way, and I hope it's a helpful, for, helpful for you. So if we were to summarize the big idea of this text, we could say it this way. Paul is asking God to give the Ephesian believers greater insight and greater understanding of the eternal realities that he set over their life for his own glorious purposes. Paul's asking that God would help these believers know these eternal and wonderful promises that are true reality for them. And he lists three of them. The unwavering hope that they have in Christ, both now and forever. The endowment of God's unmeasurable riches that come with being a part of his family that can never be exhausted or run out. And the immeasurable power that they're entitled to and that they've been supplied and equipped with in following Christ and, and, and fighting against sin because they've been adopted as his children. These promises, these realities that are true of anyone who's in Christ, when we sit down and comprehend them, they almost seem too good to be true. Have you ever had someone offer you a deal or, or make you aware of an opportunity that just seemed far too good to be true? Maybe you're, you're uh, much wiser than me, and for your sake, I hope you are, because I found myself many times uh, certainly being tempted by, and at other times, falling into the temptation of being suckered into a deal. Um, I won't share all the stories, but uh, one of them that came to mind as I was preparing this week was uh, when Audrey and I first bought our first home. When you... When you buy a home, uh, maybe, again, you're smarter than, than we are, uh, we had no idea what we were doing. We, we didn't know what a mortgage was. We didn't know what uh, escrow was. We didn't know what the, the payoff schedule was and property taxes, how all that works. And, and we certainly had no idea all the costs that came along with buying a home. And... And so we were, we were very surprised when we bought our first, first home, uh, but we were so thankful, we were so excited, God had given us uh, a place to call our own. And, and one of the things that I noticed when we bought our first home was we started to re receive an incredible amount of unsolicited mail. And, and this mail just, I mean, it just piled in. It was I'm sure they cut down an entire forest just for us to supply the paper for this mail. I mean, it's incredible, the amount. And, and it was all sorts of 
offers and deals from local businesses to banks about how if we opened up a credit card with them or if we, uh, if we uh, opened up a checking account, they would give us a certain amount of uh, cash to use. Um, some of them, uh, the, the real sneaky ones, they'd write us a check on there and, and it looked like, hey, you know, we're giving you this check uh, for you to cash and then you'd, you'd read the fine print and it was like, if you cash this check, you've sold your soul to us kind of thing. And, and, and so thankfully, I was smart enough not to buy into those things. But one day, a check came in the mail or, or, or a uh, piece of mail came in that had a check attached to it, but it, it looked different than the other ones. It had all the official markings. Um, it, 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 was, it wasn't written in like a, a, a standard amount, like $200. It was written at an odd amount. It was down to the, the cents. And it was addressed to Audrey and I. And as I pretended, as I read through it and pretended I knew what I was reading, because I didn't know what I was doing, I, uh, I, I couldn't find anywhere where, where it was like, if you cash this check, it's going to cost you something. There's, there's a hidden fee or, or a, a gotcha in there. And so instead of tearing it up, there was something that just stood out to me. So I, I ended up reaching out to my lender and asked him about it. And what he told me was that what I was holding in my hand was my escrow refund. And I was about to throw that away, thinking it was, it was, it was too good to be true that this amount of money was mine, that somebody was giving me money. And, and what he assured me of was that the check I was holding in my hand was real. It was good. And that it wasn't anything hidden behind it, any, any sort of uh, uh, program I was joining. It, it was absolutely a good thing, and it was true, and I could trust it. And when Paul lays out for us in Ephesians 15, or 1, 15 through 23, these realities of the believers standing in their new life, in their relationship with Christ, they sometimes seem too good to be true because we know what life looks like for us. How we don't feel like we have the immeasurable power of God in our life to resist sin to turn away from the world. How we have this unwavering hope that we're fully convinced of. We know in our own hearts the doubts that creep in, the feelings that sway us. And what Paul is saying is that these promises for any and all believer, believers in Christ Though they may seem too good to be true, they are infinitely more real. They are infinitely more true. They are infinitely more valuable than any other reality that we face. And so, as we look to our passage this morning in Ephesians 2, what we're going to see is that Paul wants us not only to know the reality of these truths and the breadth and the depth and all the specific applications of how those promises play out in our lives that we could spend 
the rest of our life trying to unfold and unpack and never come to a conclusion. He not only wants us to know those things, he's, but he also wants us to believe how certain and sure they are. And he's going to give us some evidence of it. And he's going to do so by calling his readers' attention to the gospel's transformative work in a person's life, both for now and all eternity, when the gospel grips someone's heart and it works powerfully. That's evidence that the promises that God has made and the power and the, working, the work of God in our life is absolutely true. So look at me, or look with me, I'm sorry, at verse 1 of chapter 2, the scripture says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That first word, that little word, and, there, connects this passage to Paul's previous thought. It's as if Paul is saying to us, that the incredible promises and realities that he just outlined for us are going to connect to what he, he, he is saying to us now. And he turns to us and it's like he's pointing his finger at you and at me. And he says, if you forget who you were or you doubt the certainty of God's promises, let me point you to the evidence. And it starts with who you were before Christ. He says, you were dead. Now, for those of you here this morning who have grown up in the church, who have grown up hearing some form of of Bible, gospel-saturated teaching, this reality may not pack the same punch that it once did. The idea is so central to the gospel we proclaim. It's so central to the songs that we sing about the gospel that we proclaim that we were dead in our sins, that our familiarity with this idea can breed comfortability. It can breed a casualness. A, yeah, I, I, I know that. I, I'm, I need to move beyond that. And Paul brings us back to that. And he says, you were dead. Do you remember the first time that reality gripped your heart? The first time that you realized you were a sinner, not just because your mom or your dad told you or a pastor was on stage and they told you, but because the Spirit of God brought the truth to mind and you and opened your eyes and realized, I am a wicked person. Do you remember the first time you realized? There was no hope for you. That no matter how hard you tried, no matter how hard you, you worked and, 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 and strove for it, no matter, no matter what you did, you couldn't settle the debt. Paul is telling us, 
don't forget where you came from. You were dead. Maybe you're visiting with us this morning or, or joining us online and, and this is the first time uh, or, or even maybe not the first time, but you've never come to understand the reality of what the Bible has to say about a person's relationship with God. Our text here in, in verses 1 through 3 specifically points us to three clear realities about every person before they meet Christ. And the first one is this. They're very simple. Number one, every person before Christ is dead. What does that mean? Because that seems odd to us. We tend to think of, uh, we, we, we have a sp- special compartment for, uh, for death and, and dead things. And I'm looking around here this morning. There's many of you here and, and there's one thing in common in front of me. You all are alive. What does Paul mean that we were dead? He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. This is something that happens at the soul level. God created us as embodied souls. And he created man in his own image, unique from the rest of his creation. And he breathed life into him. He made them out of dust. He, he set them apart from other creations. And what sets man apart from every other thing that we can see is that God put in us a soul, an eternal reality. There's part of us that is eternal, that will live forever even after physical death comes. And Paul is saying here, this is where death starts. I love what one uh, commentator, as I was working through this text, wrote and put it really, really helpfully for me, um, and, and I hope it can be helpful for you. He says this, How can this be, some people wonder, when there's so many people around us who are so very much alive? Their bodies are strong and robust. They have quick, active intellects. They're brimming with personality. And the answer is this. In the area which matters most, their soul, they have no life. They are blind to the reality and demands and glory of Christ, and they do not love him. Paul wants us to know that this is the state of every person outside of Christ. You were dead. But not only that, he continues on in the text. So look back at verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. Your sin, your action or attitude, your heart's bent towards opposition to your creator separated you from God. It brought death. And he says, in these you once walked following the course of the world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul says, not only is every person outside of Christ dead, but secondly, every person outside of Christ is enslaved. Enslaved to what? He, he lists three entities that every person is born enslaved to. And to summarize them, they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. He gives, a, he gives some description of this, and, and without taking the time to unpack the different ways that, that we are enslaved to the world and the devil and the flesh, I want to summarize for you what he's saying here. When he talks about the world, Paul is talking about this general attitude and direction of sinful humanity that is always going against God. It's a prevailing mindset and worldview that is wholly opposed to God. And so as we look around, this is the world that we live in. We live in a world that is hostile to God, that, that shakes its fist at its creator because at its essence, it wants to be God. The devil, known as the prince of the power of the air in this text, also the spirit at work here, is a spiritual being. He, he's known as Lucifer, the fallen angel, or Satan. And he is the energizer and the architect behind the world. He's the leader. The, the, the scriptures actually call him the God of this world. He has power here. And he's working to destroy, to seek and devour, to kill anything and anyone whom he can. And the scripture says that we were born enslaved not only to this mindset, but under the lordship of the evil one because of our sin. The third thing is the flesh. Scripture says that we have our sin-marred being, our flesh, it is uh, not necessarily the, the material thing, but it is the inner man within us that has become corrupted. And that, that is senseless and opposed toward God and spiritual things. And so Paul here is pointing to us and he says, this was your reality. This was every person's reality outside of Christ. You were dead in sin you were enslaved to sin under the controlling influences, both internally and externally, opposed to God. And then look what he says in verse 3. He says, among whom we all 
once lived. So if there's any question about the totality of this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The third thing Paul says is, you were dead, you were enslaved, and you were condemned. You were condemned to the wrath of God. And this isn't just a little bit of anger or frustration because we messed up God's plan or because uh, we, we, uh, we did something to uh, offend God and so he, he's mad but he'll be okay. This is the full force and weight of a holy, righteous God and his punitive wrath towards our sin. In order to understand this, we have to understand the character of God. In our day and age, we, uh, we love to, to emphasize certain aspects of God. And, I, and, and different places do it differently. I've sat under certain ministries where uh, the, the emphasis was on the just wrath of God. I've sat under other ministries where the emphasis was wholly on the love of God. And we have to come back to what the scripture tells us, that the chief attribute of our God from which all other attributes flow and are in perfect unity is the holiness of God. God is uniquely separate. He's not like us. He is completely incomprehensible. We, we can put words together to begin to describe him, but we can never fully capture the fullness of his character, the fullness of his justice, of his righteousness, of his beauty, his, his power. And from that, All of those flow from his holiness. God says this about himself. I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. That's what it means to be holy, to be God. It's to be unique. Which means that everything he, decre- uh, he does and he decrees flows out of his perfect character. Which means he gets to set the standard and he always meets the standard. And so when we come to God and we rebel against God and we can't meet the standard... This is offensive to God, not because he's some tyrant who enjoys punishing people, who's angry all the time. God is offended at sin because it's an assault on him. 
And his holiness demands that he respond to it. And not just that he responds to it, but that he responds to it in a righteous, holy, just, loving way. And the scripture tells us that how that plays out here in verse 3 is this. Wrath. It's punitive wrath. It's just punishment for sin. And until we realize that, we don't understand the depth and the desperation of our situation before God. It's the plight of every human being, but also notice the word there, by nature. So not only is it total, this is every human being is dead, is enslaved, is condemned, but this is their reality, the scripture says, by nature. How does that work out? Well, some of you here this morning are very gifted in certain areas. Some of you are very artistic, okay? I am not one of those blessed people, okay? Whether it's music, whether it's drawing, painting, God has not given me those gifts. I was failing my 10th grade art class after two weeks, okay? God did not bless me with that. Some of you by nature can look at something and then draw it on a piece of paper. Some of you can hear something and play it on an instrument. Some of you by nature are very good with money. You're business-minded. Some of you are academic. And anything that comes your way in school, like it, you don't even have to try. You just, it just comes naturally to you. Some of you are athletic. Some of you are tall. You were born that way. Some of you are short. Some of you have blue eyes and brown eyes. And these things are yours, not because of anything you've done, but by nature. And Paul is saying there's one thing that is by nature each of ours. It's that we're born dead. We're born enslaved to sin. And we're born condemned because of our sin. We have no hope, no ability to overcome or turn away or pay for our sin. And Paul's looking at us, and for the believer here this morning, he's saying, this was your story. This was my story. And to those here this morning who maybe don't know Christ, Paul is looking at you and saying, this is your story. This is the story of every person to be born. And that's one of the implications of this text I want to lay before you. This is the reality of every person to be born. To be born is to be born spiritually dead. To be born separated from Christ. You aren't a Christian because you go to church. 
You aren't a Christian because your parents send you to Christian school or do family devotions. You aren't a Christian because you grew up in the South. A Christian is somebody who has been made alive by Christ. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. And so for those of you here this morning who have never never encountered Jesus, who, have, who find yourself here saying, you're saying that if I'm outside of Christ, if I've never encountered Jesus in a personal way, this is my description, the answer is yes. And if that's you here this morning, I'm so glad you're here because this text is going to lead us into the very thing that can remedy this very real problem you have. For those of you who are here this morning and do know Christ, and this was your story until you met Christ, I want to encourage you to remember the reality that this is every person's reality that we interact with. Your coworker, who seems like a nice person, who doesn't cuss too much, who you shoot the breeze with, this person, until they meet Christ, falls under Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Your neighbor, unless they meet Christ, this is their reality. They're dead. They're enslaved and they're condemned. Your family members, parents, your kids, until they meet Christ, are dead, enslaved, and condemned. Don't assume because you come to Calvary and you drop them off at youth group every week that your kid is a Christian. They need Jesus to come make them alive, just as you needed Jesus to make you alive, as the text says. Our responsibility as believers is to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, as Paul will eventually point us to in Ephesians 4, and that Proclaim the excellencies, Peter says, of the one who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. So the implication of the reality of every person outside of Christ ought to push us to share Christ with everyone. Here's the second implication. What it takes for someone to be rescued and delivered from the wrath of God under which they rightly stand, that they've earned with their sin, is nothing short of a miracle. Look at the text with me in verse 4. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive 
together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Many men have spent entire sermons and entire sermon series or written books and commentaries on these two little verses and even these two first words. These seven little letters in the English language stand in massive contrast to what Paul just laid out about our reality, but God. What did God do? Verse four gives us descriptions of our God and the motivation of why he did what he did, but it isn't until verse five that we get to the explanation of what God did. He says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. God is doing an action here. And what is that action? It is enlivening. It's breathing life. Are you comprehending the miracle that Paul is laying out before us. The God of the universe is taking something dead and creating in it something new and something alive. Death death is a reality that all of us are faced with. It's prevalent in our culture. I mean, you open your news app and you're, you're going to see something about somebody dying within 30 seconds of scrolling. You can't even open the, the ESPN sports app anymore without getting an update about some coach who has died or some player who has died. Death is everywhere. And the scripture tells us it's because of sin. And if you're like me, and like a lot of our culture here, and particularly in the West, death is something we don't like to talk about. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't like thinking about it. And we certainly don't want to be around it. And I know several of you, many of you in here, have been faced with the reality of death whether it's a close brush with death yourself, whether it's losing a loved one. And I don't intend at all to make light of this reality that is part of our broken world, but I want to draw your attention to something to help remind you of the miracle that Scripture is telling us. Dead things have no capacity for life. Death is the absence of life. And so, no matter how hard a dead thing, if it could try to bring itself back to life, it can't. And no matter how hard we, if something is truly dead, try to bring it back to life, we can't. But the scripture here is saying that God 
the author of life brings dead, enslaved, condemned sinners to life. There's a miracle that happens at salvation. And it comes about only by the power of the living God. If you think back to our text last week, think of the immeasurable greatness of his power that is towards you. How do we know that God's power is toward us? It's because God takes dead sinners and he makes them alive. He did it first to Jesus. And that was God's display and his promise and proclamation that he can do it again in your heart and in my heart. And if God can do it in us, God can do it in every single person. Salvation is nothing less than a miracle. The text also points us to why God did it. Look at verse four. It's amazing. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Why does God resurrect a person to new life? Is it because they're awesome? They're special? And, 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 and they, they bring something to the table? Is it because they found a loophole and now God is obligated to bring them to life? Is it because they earned it of some merit or, or work of their own? No, the scripture says God is the one who makes a person alive. And here's why. He's rich in mercy and he's great in love. The God of the universe who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, who is perfect, who created us, who gave us life, who we turned against, that God has to punish Sin. It's loving and just of him to do, but equally balanced with that is his immeasurable amount of grace and mercy and kindness. We don't serve a God who's distant and impersonal. We serve a God who loves us. As Jeremy so helpfully put, as he holds Renner and tears are streaming down his face and his heart is overflowing with love. The greatest capacity that the human heart can feel, God's love for us far surpasses it. And he demonstrated it by sending Jesus to die. He demonstrated his love and his mercy. 
Another commentator puts it this way. This was so rich and helpful. Paul assembles four words to express the origins of God's saving initiative. He writes of God's mercy, of God's love, of God's grace, and of his kindness. You can find each of those words in the text. And he says this, When we were dead and so helpless to save ourselves, only mercy could reach the helpless. For mercy is love for the down and out. That was our plight before God, down and out. We were under the wrath of God and only love can triumph over wrath. We deserve nothing at God's hand except his judgment. And on account of our trespasses and sins, only grace could rescue us from our deserts for grace is undeserved favor. And then catch this. Out of his sheer mercy, love, and kindness, God saved us. That kind of love contains power that resurrects dead, stony hearts to new life. And so, where are we supposed to go with this text this morning? And I want to point you to three areas. Let me point you back to where we started. Verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. God's amazing promises and realities that he tells us are ours if we are in Christ. The hope that he's called us to. That's unwavering. That has no chance of coming up short. That actually, the scripture says, no heart, no mind can comprehend what God has planned. And the call of God is irrevocable. So, When God calls you to salvation, he keeps you through to glorification. The hope that God's called you means that for today and forever, God's promises are true. His unlimited riches that he's lavished on you that aren't material possessions, God's riches are so much more and so much better than just stuff. His riches are grace, their mercy, their power, their strength. And he says, they are an unlimited storehouse. You can't ever run dry. His immeasurable greatness of his power that he's put in you to sustain you, to strengthen you, to keep you. These are certain realities evidenced by the power God exhibited in raising Jesus from the dead and then exhibited in raising us from the dead. These are yours and mine because of God's grace. And it's all for the praise of his glory. And that leads us into the second thing I want to leave you with this morning. It's this. As I studied this week, I came across something really interesting. I didn't come across any command statements 
in our text this morning or in last week's text. And as I scoured through quickly, I didn't, I didn't take time to go into all the depth of, of study. But as far as I can tell, in chapters 1 through 3, there's only two command statements. One in chapter 2, verse 11, and one in chapter 3, verse 13. And the one in chapter 2 says this, remember. And the one in chapter 3 says this, don't lose heart. So even the command statements actually kind of point us back to the statements that we read and and will continue to study for the next couple weeks in chapters 1 through 3, which is not the gospel calls you to do, it's actually the gospel has done this. And Paul is eventually, in in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to lead us to all these truths that God has done for us and that are true of our life, those are going to become the foundation that we use to follow the commands of God. But Paul's not concerned about that right now. For the first three chapters, all Paul wants to do is inform you of the reality that's true if you're in Christ. And where that should lead you and me this morning is the same place that it led Paul, which is worship. Ephesians 1 through 3 is a prayer and letter of worship to our amazing God. He can't help but sing and pray and declare the wonderful excellencies of what God has done in his life and how those realities are true for you and for me. And so what I want to encourage you with is this. The text ought to lead us to informed worship this morning. We ought to walk out of here informed about the realities that are ours in Christ. And that ought to stir our hearts to bring praise and glory to our God. And what we see in informed worship is that it always progresses towards transformed living. But the way you get to transformed living comes through informed worship. So a proper response this morning is to embrace the goodness of the gospel and be be stirred in light of whatever you're facing. Whatever sin that you continue to feel enslaved to, you go back to the gospel. That amazing power and those amazing promises, they're true for you. Whatever discouragement you're facing, you go back to the gospel and you inform your feelings and your mind of what reality is true for you. And informed worship leads to transformed living. Here's the last comment I'll make this morning and then we'll be done. And it's for my friends here this morning who I go back to and say, maybe you're visiting, maybe you've grown up here. 
and you've never understood fully, whether you've heard it a thousand times or whether today is the first time, the reality of your standing before God that Paul clearly lays out for us in verses one through three. You are dead, you're enslaved, you're condemned. Those aren't fun words to hear. They're certainly not fun words to say. But they're the reality for you if you've never come to Christ. And what I want to point you to this morning is that the promises of God in this text, the miracle working power of God to resurrect your dead soul to life, and all the realities that come with it that sound too good to be true, they're actually available to you. This good news, this promise is offered to you today because of Jesus. Jesus came to take our place so that we might be made right with God. He came to bear the wrath that's rightly placed on us for our sin. He bore that on the cross. He died. The Father turned his back on him so that God wouldn't have to do that for you. He poured out that wrath on Jesus for our sin and he did it so that when he raised Jesus back to life because the grave couldn't hold him. He demonstrated his power, but he also demonstrated his mercy and his grace. And listen to the words of Jesus repeatedly in scripture. Scripture says, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him drink. Whoever believes in me, the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, new life, resurrected life. All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never turn away. So it doesn't matter how dead your heart is, because you have no capability to bring yourself back to life. But there is one, and he's extending that offer to you today. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you will turn to Christ in faith and repentance... The certainty of those promises are true for you. And the way you do that isn't with a magical formula. It's not with a special prayer. It's not by cleaning yourself up. It's by confessing in your heart that you recognize the truth of what God has told you, that you're a sinner who needs salvation and you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And it doesn't matter how 
you confess that to God. It's that you confess that to God. And then it says, with your mouth, you follow it up because it changes your life. And so this morning, as I pray, I want to invite you, if you've never done that, to simply call out to God. Talk to him the very truths and ideas that he's told you today, that you realize you're dead, enslaved, condemned, and that the only hope you have is that Jesus would make you alive. And that you're trusting Jesus to do that. Because he's the only one that can. After I pray, we're going to sing a song. And, and if, if you have questions about that, I'd invite you to, to step out with someone maybe who brought you or find one of our pastors. Pastor Jerry and Robert will be out in the back. Come talk to me during the song or after the service. We would love to share with you more about what the scripture says about this. But I want you to know that the offer is there for you and it's true for you. It's not too good to be true. Not that it's not good, it's amazing. But it is real and it's true. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you this morning amazed, in some ways speechless of how to comprehend the reality of our lives before you and to, re, to comprehend the reality of the gracious gift that you have given us, that you offer us. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are outside of you that you would stir in their hearts a response to the need to, to enlighten their eyes to see their need and to know the hope that is before them. And God, would you save them? God, I pray for those here this morning who do know you, who are all over the spectrum, some today in a great spot, some today who are still wrestling with sin, some today who are doubting, who are hurting. God, I pray that the gospel would, would encapsulate their mind. God, I pray that for myself. God, we ask these things in your